friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. now we're ready to go to God's Word, so may I invite you to please rise from your seats. We're now in part two of the sermon series that we entitled, Happily Harassed. So turn with me to Matthew 5, verses 10 to 12, please. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and bless you for this blessed morning. What a joy it is to just worship you because you deserve it. And Lord, we just want to thank you also for just being so gracious to manifest your sweet presence in our midst, O oh God, and we tasted of your goodness this morning. We pray, O oh Lord, that you might continue to minister to us, your people, that this Sunday might be a meaningful one. We pray, O oh God, that you might speak to our hearts, open our minds and our eyes to receive from you, and may your name be glorified as the power of the Holy Spirit dwells, resides, and moves in our midst, O oh God. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Now, the question that we wanted to answer last time around, and which I think we partially answered, is why are the righteous persecuted? And we said that we live in, in opposites compared to that of the world. The world is walking on one side, and we happen to be walking the opposite direction. And as we move together, what happens is there is bound to be a collision. And this is the reason why you and I get persecuted. The Bible says that darkness hates light. Now, that is something that you and I uh, have as part of our reality menu as believers in Christ. So we finished part one of our study, so we're ready to conclude our sermon series. But I'd like to be able to review for you what we have covered so far. And we talked about the blessedness of, uh, of persecution for the sake of righteousness. And what we talked about last time around is we defined righteousness for us, all right? And, of course, some people would like to be able to find out how does righteousness play out in our lives. And we don't have to guess, actually. And the reason is we are given the first seven Beatitudes, and that is how righteousness looks like. Now, just to review what we talked about previously, the first is blessed are the poor in spirit. That speaks about spiritual bankruptcy that speaks about dependence on the Lord, that speaks about an understanding that we do not have any merit whatsoever before a holy God. We are all totally undeserving. Secondly, we talked about mourning in the Spirit. And why do we mourn? Well, we mourn because we realize that because we have nothing to offer, what we actually do offer are things that offend God. We have sinned against God. We have transgressed against His laws. We have trespassed uh, the commandments of God. And definitely, if you are a born-again Christian, you will definitely mourn. You will grieve. And the problem at times, as A.W. Tozer says, is oftentimes Christians heal themselves too soon. We heal ourselves too soon. Of course, we understand that God is gracious and is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But then understand this, that whenever we sin against God, we're actually grieving 
the Holy Spirit who has made us His permanent residence here on earth. Now that in itself should cause us to mourn and grieve for our sins. Now we know God is faithful to forgive us. Now after that, we spoke about meekness. Meekness is power under control. There are times we can actually harm people. We can, we can inflict hurt upon certain people, but we stop ourselves from doing that. Why? Because we want to be able to operate in love. The Bible also says that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, this is something that is not true with unbelievers. They do not have any spiritual appetite whatsoever. But because we have come to Christ, we have this spiritual appetite in us. I used to tell this story that when I was a new born-again Christian, you know, there were certain things that began to change. Previously, I never read the Bible. I never studied the Bible. In fact, we had a Bible in our own home, and it was really filling up with a lot of dust because nobody was reading it. It was more of a religious decoration at home. But when I came to Christ, I began to devour the Bible. I began to read it. I was so hungry and thirsty to know more about this God with whom I now had a relationship. And that's exactly what happens to us. If you are a born-again Christian, that is what you have right now. You have this spiritual appetite. You have this spiritual thirst. And then we segue into blessed are the merciful. Now, it's not just about sympathy. It's not just about pity. It is compassion in action. And this is where people know uh, that we have changed. Because so many people, they, they talk about things that are moral. They think about things that are right, but they don't do anything about it. And so far as we are concerned, when we see a need, we do something about it. And that is why the Bible says, blessed are the merciful. And then it also says that blessed are the pure in heart. You see, religiosity is not measured simply by the things that we do. We can actually come up with a spiritual facade and pretend that we're spiritual and we're holy. But you know what? God knows our hearts. God knows every thought, every intention, every motive of our heart. And that is why in the very presence of God, what is truly important is that we be pure in our hearts. And again, that's the reason why we need to guard our hearts, because from our hearts is the wellspring of life. And then we are told, blessed are the peacemakers. And why should that be so? Well, the first peacemaker that I know of is God Himself. We are called His enemies, but He reconciled us to Himself. And because we are ambassadors of Christ, we are to reflect the goodness, the character of our God. That is why we have to have this desire to bring people into a saving relationship with Christ because that is the only way they can be at peace with God. But then again, we also need to talk about practical peacemaking. And this talks about our horizontal relationship with people. If we are truly at peace with God, we will also be at peace with other people. And we pursue that diligently in our lives. That's why we segue into persecution because when people see this, when they see the light, when they see our righteousness, they get convicted. And they, people don't want to get convicted. People don't want to feel guilty about their sins. They want to, to feel freedom when they, when they sin against God, when they do deeds of wickedness, when they do things that are immoral and perverse, they don't want to be guilty about it. They want to have this sense of freedom. But you see, when you and I, even without speaking, bring forth the kind of life that they thought was impossible, they get angry with us. 
Because previously, they had excuses. Previously, they could exonerate themselves and say, well, this is how every Tom, Dick, and Harry lives his life. But then you come along and you're able to present, you're able to display a kind of life that people think was impossible. So they hate you for that because they become guilty, because they come face to face with the reality that there is really hope for godliness. There is hope of being reconciled with God. And that's why in our previous study, we talked about the fact that uh, we get persecuted as a result of righteousness. Now, I also mentioned the fact that we should not be persecuted for the wrong reasons. And that would rather be unfortunate. People will trample upon our own testimony. We don't want our testimony to be trampled upon by people. You know, when I was a new born-again Christian, I said, Lord, don't allow me to bring shame to your name. And this was my prayer to God. Lord, if I'm going to bring shame to your name, Lord, take me home. I would rather die than bring shame to your glorious name. And up until today, that is, that is still my prayer. I do not want to bring shame to the name of the Lord. And you and I should not be persecuted for the wrong reasons. Unfortunately, right now, as we see scandal after scandal after scandal with big names in the Christian world, what has happened is that it has tainted our testimony. And the result of that is the hardening of the hearts of people. Now, you do not want to be the very impediment and the very obstacle for people to come to Christ. And so we talked about the reward that we will get. And I mentioned the fact that a lot of people, unfortunately, don't know that there is a millennial kingdom. They get surprised when I talk about this. And when I begin to explain that it is an earthly, visible, literal kingdom, with Jesus ruling and reigning here on earth, with his headquarters being in Jerusalem, and David serving as a caught tetrarch as well with him, people really get surprised because people think, well, when we die, it's all about going to heaven. Of course, we rejoice in that. The Bible speaks about the new Jerusalem. It will be our home. But understand this, earth will be renovated. It will go through fire. It will be cleansed. It will be sanctified by fire. That's why the Bible speaks about a new heavens and a new earth, and we will rule and reign on that earth. I look forward to that time. The world that we live in right now, it's messy, it's chaotic. You get frustrated with the politics of this world. You get frustrated with the corruption that you see around. You get frustrated with, with the hatred that you see around. The violence that you see around is really frustrating. So I really look forward to that time when Christ would come again and set up His own kingdom. And when He sets up His own kingdom, it will be a different world. It will be a world of righteousness. It will be a world of godliness. It will be a world where, where there will be no more religion except the religion of Christianity. Only Christ would be worshipped at that time. All the false gods will be removed from the earth at that time. People will be at peace with each other. There will no longer be any war. There will be prosperity all over. The curse would be partially lifted. And we will begin to see an earth that is so beautiful and so wonderful. Something that right now we already are amazed with creation. But think about how creation would look like when the curse of God upon this earth would be partially removed. And then we segue, of course, into the rest of eternity, wherein everything will be permanent. Some people get to ask me, is it possible, Pastor Mel, that, that when we get to heaven or when we're in God's kingdom already, is it possible for us to sin again just like Adam and Eve? 
And my answer to that is never again. Because the Bible says that when Jesus appears, we shall be like Him. Amen? We shall be perfect. Amen? And we will not sin in the same way that Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord. Now, we go to the second part. Excuse me for the long introduction. I couldn't help myself. I just had to explain this all over again. And here we go to the second part. And this is where we will conclude our sermon series. We're going to talk about three expressions of hatred towards Christianity. You find insult, persecution, and false accusations. Now, they all sound synonymous, but they have various dimensions. And I'd like to bring that on the table just for you to be able to see how the world hates us in various ways. And then we're going to talk about two responses to persecution. Again, they seem synonymous, but they're actually using two different Greek words. So again, it presents to us something rather different, the way we respond to the world. Then we're going to talk about the rational for the response that we will have this great reward in heaven. Great reward. Not just a reward, but great reward in heaven. Right now, we rejoice in the fact that our athletes are garnering golds. Probably this is the best ever performance of our athletes in the Southeast Asian Games. And they're glorying in that. They're biting their, their gold medals. And we rejoice in that. But friends, you know what? The kind of reward that we have is eternal and incorruptible. Amen? And that is awaiting us. Hallelujah. And here's something that tops it off. We belong to great company. It's our own hall of fame in the Christian world. So let's dive into our text right now, and let's talk about the blessedness of persecution for Christ's sake. Let's have a look at verses 11 and 12 at this time. It says, Blessed are you when people insult you, and persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now you will notice that verses 11 and verse 12 is actually an expansion or an amplification of verse 10. And I think the message really that God is bringing across is that we are doubly blessed. The emphasis is here. And, and some people think that, isn't it exaggerating when you say that happy are you when you are persecuted? And, of course, people find a contradiction in terms with, with the title that I came up with, happily harassed. But is it true? Is it true that when we are persecuted, we could still rejoice. Is it true that when we are persecuted, we could be glad? And I think the amplification in verses 11 and 12 tells us that it is something that should happen. It's not just something that can happen. It is something that should happen in our lives. A lot of people, unfortunately, when they get persecuted, you know, they, they feel inconvenienced. They feel the discomfort, and they don't want it. On the contrary, our attitude should be that of rejoicing and being happy about it. So, if you're persecuted, you're doubly blessed. Now again, is this statement presumptuous? I don't think so. Let's look at some examples from Scripture. Let's have a look at Acts chapter 5 and verses 40 to 41. And this is what it says, they took his advice, and after calling the apostles, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. They were flogged. They probably received 39 lashes. But it, here's what happened. They were flogged, they were ordered not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they were released. Notice what happens after being flogged. It says, so they went on their way, 
from the presence of the council. And what happened? What was the response? Rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. They were considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. Now, talk about a different perspective when it came to the early Christians. It became a matter of pride. Now, we're not talking about sinful pride here. We're talking about exulting in the fact that they were able to suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. They consider it, in fact, a gift, a gift by God. That is why in the early times, martyrdom was called the gift of martyrdom. When somebody died for the name of Christ, it was called a day of victory. And so here we find that there was much rejoicing on the part of the apostles. Their master had suffered and died for them. Their master was crowned with a crown of thorns. His hands were pierced with nails. He died a criminal's death. He was flogged. He was beaten up. He was spat upon. And these apostles were saying, if our master did that for us, if our master suffered for us so that our sins could be forgiven, this is but a little thing to be flogged. What a great way to suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. Friends, there are brothers and sisters in the Middle East and in communist China and in Africa who are suffering the same fate that these early apostles experienced. And you can ask them, brothers and sisters, they are filled with joy. I saw this picture of an African man whose upper lip was torn apart. His gums were coming out. His, his teeth were coming out. He had no upper lip anymore. But you ask these people, in fact, if you ask the communist Chinese or the Christians, the Christians in communist China, what they desire for those Christians who are in the West and in the free world, their answer would be this, how I wish they would be persecuted. Because they know that persecution has a sanctifying and purifying effect. And it brings about real and genuine joy. This is where we find who are the men and who are the boys. Who are the fake ones and the real ones. And then we take a look at Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. It says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. He was somebody who was in prison. He was somebody who was under house arrest. Here was somebody who was chained to the Praetorian Guard 24-7. Yet you would expect that he is the one who would be comforted or who would be admonished or who would be encouraged by people outside. Yet what we find here is, is this person who was under house arrest was the one who was actually admonishing and encouraging people to rejoice in the Lord. It was the actual reverse of what we would think it would be. And that is why, again, it is no exaggeration when the Bible says, blessed are you when men persecute you. Happy are you when men persecute you. Now, there are three expressions of hatred towards Christianity which we find in verse 11. And let's, let's have a look at verse 11 at this time. It says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now, I'd like you to take, take note of the fact that the word that is used here is when. It does not say if. So when speaks about certainty. It's only a question of timing. The word if is not used because if the word if is used, it can happen, it may not happen. But the word when tells us it will happen. The only issue here is timing. 
The Greek word, by the way, that is used here is the Greek word hotan, which can also mean whenever. Now, that also tells us that we do not get persecuted every single day. So do not ever have this persecution complex wherein you go to your office and you say, persecute me. Or you go to your school, you stand on, on a chair and say, persecute me. No, we're not to have a persecu persecution complex. It doesn't happen every day, but it happens. If you are a genuine Christian, it will happen to you. Because the Bible says that the godly shall be persecuted. Now, when it comes, we are not to be surprised at all. Now, what, what are the things to expect? First, an insult. It comes from the Greek word, oneditso, to speak dis disparagingly of a person in a manner which is not justified. I recall the story of a Christian lady who was working in a bank, and the bank manager actually, out of hatred, called her a false prophet. And so later on, this bank manager migrated to, uh, he migrated to uh, Alaska, and when he migrated to Alaska, he felt this great emptiness of soul. He, he felt hollow. He felt lost. And to make a long story short, he met a group of Christian businessmen. And the result was he got converted to Christ. So guess what he does? He writes a letter to this lady whom he used to persecute. And he tells her, probably apologizes to her, and he tells her that he was now a converted Christian. Amen? Praise the Lord. Again, we give the Lord, just give the Lord a big hand, please. Praise God. We thank God for, for situations like that. But aside from being insulted, we get persecuted. The Greek word here is the Greek word dioko, which means to systematically organize a program. It means to systematically organize a program to oppress and harass people. So we're not talking about a mere spontaneous persecution. We're talking about organized persecution here. It's the kind of persecution that comes from the Sanhedrin, for example. It is the kind of persecution that comes from the Judaizers. It is the kind of persecution that comes from the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees. And nowadays, it is the kind of persecution that you find in communist China. It is the kind of persecution that you find in the Middle East, where our brothers are being shot by a firing squad, where they are being impaled on a stake, where they are being imprisoned. And some of the Christian women are being raped and killed at the same time. We're talking about organized persecution. Now, you know what? In our country, we don't experience that. Unfortunately, we have not used our freedom to good use. We have the freedom of speech. We have the freedom of religion. And yet, it is as if we are living in countries like the Middle East and Communist China, whereas our own brothers and sisters are opening their mouth, whereas our brothers and sisters in those closed countries are offering their very lives, we are shutting our mouths. And we are not speaking the truth when we have this freedom. What are we afraid of? Are we afraid of being mocked? Are we afraid of being insulted? Are we afraid that we would lose our friends? I don't think you would even lose a job for being a Christian. What do we really have to lose? Lose face? I mean, what face do we really have to show? Before God Himself, aren't we all undeserving sinners? What are we trying to save? Unfortunately, we have not used our freedom to good use. And I pray to God that, that things would begin to change as we become proactive 
in sharing the gospel. Next is false accusation. It comes from the Greek word poneros, which pertains to being morally corrupt and evil. Now, in translating Matthew 5.11, it is important to indicate that the words spoken are not evil in themselves. It's not like people are cursing you. But the content of what is spoken involves attributing evil and wicked deeds to the followers of Jesus Christ. It may therefore be necessary to say in some languages when men speak against you by saying that you have done wicked deeds. Do you know that the early Christians were, were labeled as cannibals? You know why? Because of the Lord's Supper. And remember Jesus Christ said, I am the bread of life. And he said that unless one eats of his flesh, you know, you cannot have any part of him. And people in the Roman Empire took that literally. And that is why they said that these Christians are cannibals. That was one of the reasons why the Christians were persecuted. They would actually meet in cemeteries. They would meet in caves. They were worshiping many times underground because they were persecuted. That was what happened to them. Now, nowadays, people accuse us that when something bad happens, ang, ang rason kung ano uh, gimalas ang mga tao is tungod nato, tungod dunay usakatao sa atong pamilya nga nakristuhanon. Isn't, isn't that a funny accusation? But sometimes that's what people say. People say that bad things happen because somebody in the family became a Christian. So we're blamed for accidents that happen. We're blamed for calamities that happen. And again, these are false accusations. But then again, this is how people would treat us. Now notice, I'd like to point out something to you very important. Let's go back again to verse 11, and let's read this. It says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. What does it say? Because of whom? What does it say? Because of me. In other translations, it says, on account of me. This is the main reason why we are persecuted. Because our controlling motive and our devotion is to Christ and to His work. Christ is our greatest joy. Christ is our supreme treasure. And because Christ is our supreme treasure, people hate us because of that. You know, the center of gravity of the Christian life is not us. The center of gravity in the Christian life is Christ. We always do things on account of Him, for the sake of His name, for the sake of His glory. And if we do that, brothers and sisters, we cannot help it. You and I will be persecuted. In contrast, the world has a different center of gravity. The center of gravity of people in the world is I, me, and myself. Some years ago, a popular national magazine took a survey to determine the things that make people happy. According to the responses they received, happy people enjoy other people but are never self-sacrificing. They refuse to participate in any negative feelings or emotions. And they have a sense of accomplishment based on their own self-sufficiency. So you will notice we really live in worlds apart. The center of gravity of our lives is Christ. And the center of gravity of people is themselves. And that is why when we speak about dying to the self, they will hate us for Him. Because what Jesus offers is the cross. What Jesus offers is dying to yourself. 
and living this life in God and the world doesn't like it. Now understand this. Persecution is the normal Christian life. Could you say to your neighbor, persecution is the normal Christian life. The Bible says, happy are those who are persecuted. So could you smile a little bit, all right? So can you say that once again, happy, I'm sorry, say this again, blessed are those who are persecuted. Could you say this also, persecution is the normal Christian life. Say to your other neighbor, persecution is the normal Christian life. It's the normal Christian life. The abnormal Christian life is when you're not persecuted. Are you following? The abnormal Christian life is when you are not being persecuted. Take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4 at this time. It says, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. It's our Christian destiny. It is the reality menu of every believer in Christ. This is our destiny. Our destiny is to be hated by the world. Our destiny is to be persecuted by the world. It says, for indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. So Paul had already told them that this was going to happen, and it happened. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, notice what it says here. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake... Not only to believe in Him, but also to what? But also to suffer for His sake. That is our destiny. That is our lot. That is our portion. That is our inheritance in this life. Because after all, this is not, this is not the world that we are living for. Earth is not what we are defined with. We are defined by the fact that we are citizens of heaven. The Bible says in verse 30, Paul says, Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Let me tell you this. Popularity is not our portion. We are not sanctified celebrities. Could you tell your neighbor? You're not a sanctified celebrity. Say it to your other neighbor because he might be deluded. You are not a sanctified celebrity. For the last time, you are not a sanctified celebrity. Nowadays, unfortunately, this is what we find. There are so many sanctified celebrities in the Christian world. And sometimes you wonder, how would they possibly do in the face of persecution? How would they fare if, for instance, they lived in China? How would they fare, in, for instance, if they lived in the Middle East or in Africa? How would they fare? Bible says, take a look at Luke chapter 6, verse 26. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Now, it's not bad when, when some men speak well of us. In fact, that should be the case. They should speak well of us because we're people of honesty. They should speak well of us because we're people of integrity. They should speak well of us because we could not be bribed. They should speak well of us because we have a good family, we have a good marriage, we raise up our children in godly ways. They should speak well of us because we're hardworking, we're diligent, we do not copy answers, we study really hard. 
And so, yes, people should really speak well of us. But, but here's what the Bible warns us. It says, woe to you when all men speak well of you. For their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. That is what happened in the Old Testament. When the prophets of old were, were speaking about judgment that is about to come because of the sins of the people, because of the apostasy of the nation, these false prophets were saying, it's not going to happen. Judgment is not going to happen. The woes of, of these prophets are out of place. What we have, what we're going to have is peace. What we're going to have is prosperity. Everything will be well with us. No nation will invade us. No judgment will take place in our country, they would say. Well, that's how, how they become popular. Because they never confront people with their own sins. They never confront people about their apostasy, their immorality, their unrighteousness. They never confront people about the lies that they speak. And because of that, because they speak well all the time, they speak positive, feel-good messages. Therefore, they're not persecuted. That's why the Bible warns us, woe to you. When all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. You know the implication of this? That if all people speak well of you, it might be a possibility that you are in fact a false prophet. Because you never confront people with the truth of Scripture. So, as we get persecuted, how should we then respond? Well, there are two responses given to us in verse 12. The first response is rejoice. The Greek word here is kairo, which means to enjoy a state of happiness and well-being. In other words, it's a state of mind wherein you're focused on the Scripture, you're focused on the priorities of God, you're focused on the philosophy of the Bible, and your worldview is always in accordance or is always in alignment with what the Bible says. And because of that, for as long as you are doing the right thing, even though you are suffering, you are happy. You are rejoicing. Why? Because you're doing the right thing. And doing the right thing incurs the favor of God. The blessing of God is upon you when you do right. And so you rejoice even if you have to suffer for it. Second, the Bible says be glad. Now this is an even more emphatic word. It comes from the Greek word agaleao, which means to experience a state of great joy. Not just joy, but great joy and gladness, often involving verbal expression and appropriate body movement. The literal meaning here is to skip and jump with happy excitement. So we're not just talking about a state of mind here wherein, all right, I'm convincing myself I should be happy because I'm doing the right thing. No, this is talking about a real exulting, a real rejoicing, a real gladness, a real enthusiasm, a real joy bubbling up inside of you. And where do we find that? We find this in the case of Paul while they were in a Philippian jail. Let's talk about that uh, particular scenario in Acts chapter 16, wherein they got persecuted. Please go to Acts 16. This is what happened in Philippi. It says, The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore the robes of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. 
And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now think about the scenario that happened here. They were preaching the gospel, and all of a sudden there is a mob, an intimidating mob, a group of people, a bunch of people, maybe by the hundreds, who were rushing towards them and started to beat them up. Not only beat them with fists, but, but we are told here that they were beaten with rods as well. So just try to imagine how, how bruised, how, how black and blue they must have been. And how many wounds they must have had. And they were thrown into the prison after being beaten up by, by hundreds of people. Their feet were fastened in stocks, and they weighed, the way they do it before was they actually stretch your legs as far as it could, and then you're chained. Think about the discomfort of that. Think about the difficulty of that, not to mention the fact that you're trying to heal the wounds on your back. Blood must have dried up, and, and all the scars are, are there. And what was the response of, of Paul and Silas? Well, let's have a look. How did they respond? They had a concert. It says, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. They were having their own Hosanna concert in prison. While their feet were fastened on stocks, while they were chained, while they were healing from, from their wounds, while, while they were beaten black and blue, their faces disfigured, they were having a concert. And it was not like they were singing their, their songs in, in a silent way, like, Is He worthy? No, no, the Bible says that, that the prisoners were listening to them, which only meant they were singing aloud. Amen? They were really singing aloud with enthusiasm. Everybody was listening to them. And suddenly, guess what? There came a great earthquake. This was God's standing ovation. Amen. Hallelujah. And this is what matters really. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were unfastened. I just want to think, I just want you to think just a little, a little bit right now. Again, I'm just so proud of the Hosanna concert, proud of the singers, proud of the band, proud of everybody who worked in it, and we rejoice in that. We had a fun time last night. We, we were swinging, swaying, dancing, lifting our hands, and singing together with the singers, and that's a wonderful thing. But I wonder how we would do if we were in the situation like Paul, if it were not in an air-conditioned you know, air sanctuary like this, wherein we have comfy seats, and we have a beautiful stage, and you have all these, these bright lights, and we have, have this light show of, of different colors, and we didn't have microphones, and we didn't have sound engineers, and we didn't have you know, a, 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 a band that was playing wonderful music. How would we sing? How would we sing? I'm putting things in proper perspective. Because sometimes we're lulled into spiritual insensitivity. Sometimes we become so dense and so dull. Our Christianity is one mile wide, but only one inch thick. So many Christians, unfortunately, are very shallow. So many Christians, unfortunately, have not deepened the roots in the Lord. Christians nowadays don't want to be inconvenienced. They don't want persecution. 
They don't want to be removed from their comfort zones. One day, we're going to pass away. This morning, my wife and I received a message that one of our sisters used to be part of our Hong Kong church, became part of the Higher Rock ministry. She became part of the staff. And we got a message from one of our sisters who's also with Higher Rock, used to be with us. And she said, this sister passed away just an hour ago. And my mind goes, she was, she's young. And, and God took her home. And you know what? We, we need to be able to put our lives in proper perspective. One day, God's going to take us home. And we don't know when our expiration date is going to be. But the big question is, are we faithful to the Lord? Are we faithful to Him? Now, when we respond with skipping and jumping with excitement because of persecution, we understand, of course, that these are supernatural responses. That is why you cannot relate to this passage unless you're born again. You will never ever be able to understand what the Beatitudes are talking about. You will never ever experience the happiness that is spoken of in the Beatitudes unless, first of all, you have this relationship with Jesus Christ. That is why the beginning point, even before you start thinking about following or obeying or imbibing the Beatitudes, is first of all, you need to have a relationship with Christ. And if somehow you do not find the Beatitudes in your life, you need to be able to ask yourself this question, am I really a genuine Christian? Am I really born again? Am I really a child of God? Am I really a son or a daughter of God? Now, I can, I can comfort all of you by saying, you know what? I believe all of us are sons and daughters of God. I could say that. And you could get out of this place without feeling any discomfort whatsoever. But is that the truth? Are you really a child of God? Are you really a son and a daughter of God? This is a question we need to answer when, here, and now, not then and there. Because then and there, it's going to be too late. Here and now, if we come to the realization that I'm not a Christian, I don't have poverty of spirit, I don't mourn for my sins. I, I, I have no hunger and thirst for, for spiritual things. I'm not merciful. I, I, I don't, I'm not pure in my heart. My heart is dirty. My, my mind is dirty. And I'm not a peacemaker. I'm a troublemaker. I want fights. Well, you need to become born again. You need to become a child of God. Better that you realize that now than realize it later when it's too late because you've been buried six feet below the ground. You will not hear feel-good sermons from this pulpit you will only hear feel-good sermons when the Bible speaks about things that encourage us because we are children of God, but don't expect that from this pulpit because I, I am a messenger of truth. And if truth hurts, then let it hurt. If it will cause some people to walk out, then let them walk out. It will cause some people not to come back to church again, then let them not come back. It will cause some people to be turned off, then let them be turned off. Now, it is not like I'm, I'm speaking the truth like a, a hammer or an axe you know, to make people feel bad or guilty. No, I speak the truth in love. 
I desire every person in this hall to really have a relationship with Christ. That is my responsibility as a shepherd. My responsibility is to bring you to Christ. I am an ambassador of Christ. And I'm here to be the mouthpiece of God to you. So if the discomfort that you feel right now brings you to God, hallelujah, praise the Lord, my job is done. And I rejoice in that. That's why once again, the Beatitudes are supernatural responses. The natural reaction is not found in our lives. We do not have a pity party. We do not fight back. We do not file a lawsuit. We do not try to get other sympathy and create our own mob. We are the ones who are persecuted. We do not persecute. And so what do we do in the face of persecution? We respond. We do not react. Now when we do this, opportunities for the gospel might open uh, for us. Why? Because people will realize that if we're willing to suffer for what we believe in, then maybe what we believe in is genuine. Why, why do you think the apostles would die? Remember the accusation was that Jesus did not really die. Jesus did not really rise from the grave. His body was stolen by the disciples. Now, if it was really true that the body of Christ was stolen by the disciples just so they could claim that there was a resurrection, a fake one, why would they die for their faith? And the fact that they died for their faith meant only one thing. They genuinely believed that Jesus rose from the dead. And if people see that you're willing to suffer for your convictions, for your morality, and for your spirituality, they will say, what's in this for you? And then they will realize it must be genuine. If you're willing to lose a job, if you're willing to lose some friends, if you're willing to lose face, then what you're holding on to must be genuine and something that you truly and genuinely treasure. People who are truly seeking the truth will listen to you. And friends, even though others may not become Christians, when you respond in this proper way, guess what happens to you? You become a better Christian. Amen? You become a better Christian. Give the Lord a big hand, please. Question is, why should we respond in this supernatural way? Because there is great reward in heaven. The Bible says, for your reward in heaven is great. Say this to your neighbor. Your reward in heaven is great. Say to your other neighbor. Now, what it means is that it doesn't mean that you will get your reward once you get to heaven. What the Bible is really trying to say here is that the reward is already there. It's there already. It is awaiting you. Amen? The reward is awaiting you. Earthly life is temporary, it's fleeting, it's passing. Heaven is forever. Amen? Heaven is forever. Think about that. Heaven is forever. That's why John Chrysostom, let me tell you this story. A godly leader in the 4th century church preached so strongly against sin that he offended the unscrupulous empress Eudoxia, as well as many church officials. When summoned before Emperor Arcadius, Chrysostom was threatened with banishment if he did not cease his uncompromising preaching. His response was, Sire, you cannot banish me, for the world is my father's house. The emperor said, then I will slay you. Nay, 
But you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God, was the answer of John. And the emperor said, then your treasures will be confiscated. John replied, sire, you, that cannot be either. My treasures are in heaven where none can break and steal. The emperor was not to be outdone. He said, then I will drive you out from man and you will have no friends left. That you cannot do, said John. For I have a friend who said, I will never leave you, for we do not belong to earth, but to heaven. Amen? We do not belong to earth, but to heaven. And finally, why should we rejoice? Because we belong to great company. It says, for in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Persecution is the norm, normal response of the world since time immemorial. Darkness hates lights. We are to expect this already. We are to rejoice, however, because we are in the best possible company. Think about this. When you and I get to be in heaven, you and I will sit on a table. And on that table would be Elijah. On that table would be Elisha. On that table would be Moses. On that table would be Jeremiah. On that table would be Daniel. On that table would be Ezekiel. All the great and mighty prophets of God, those who belong to the hall of fame in Christianity, you and I belong to that company. Amen? We have great company. Amen? I look forward to that time to exchange a dialogue with, with Moses and to, to have a conversation with Elijah. I look forward to that time. And that will happen, brothers and sisters. You know why? Because we are sons and daughters of God if we have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior of our lives. And finally, let me say this. A, man, a man's company is a great revealer of men's character. Can I say it again? A man's company is a great revealer of men's character. This is the climax of the Beatitudes, the very pinnacle, the very highest height of all. And this is telling us this is who we are and this is what we should be. This beatitude is a spiritual thermometer. And this tells us the kind of spiritual temperature that you and I have as believers in Christ. Likewise measures our own growth in Christ. So I pray this message challenges you. I pray this, this message makes you uncomfortable. I pray this message convicts you. I pray this message will make you change the way you look and think about things in life. I pray this will change the way you relate to people. And I pray that this will cause you to open your mouth. And just like Paul, you would say, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and to salvation both to the Jew and to the Greek. Can we bow our heads in prayer at this time? Lord, your word has been preached. I've done my part. But you know, Lord, I can't change hearts. I can shout at the top of my voice. I can, I can speak as forcefully as I can. I can be jumping up and down the stage. I can lose my voice. But Lord, you know I can't change lives. But your word has been spoken in obedience to the stewardship you've given me. I choose not any other way 
I choose the ancient path. I preach no other message but your message alone. I pray I might be found faithful when my time comes. That I have not accommodated the spirit of this age, nor the spirit of the world, nor the culture of this world. And in my steadfastness, O God, I humbly ask for grace upon your people. For on our own, we cannot change ourselves. On our own, we are selfish. We're the center of gravity of our, li- of our lives is I, me, myself. Help us to change the center of gravity. Help us to make it you and you alone. And Lord, may we not be spectators. May we not be bench warmers. May we not just merely stay in the pews and and be silent. I pray the convicting presence of the Holy Spirit might move upon every single heart. And I pray that your word will not return to you null and void, but that it might accomplish the very purpose by which you have sent it for. So let grace abound now. Let Jesus be exalted now. Let the word be embedded in our hearts and our minds now. And Lord, whatever has been accomplished, you alone deserve the highest praise and the highest worship. I pray today, and this message is causing people to start praying to you right now. I pray the message is causing some people to repent right now. I pray that this message is causing a revival in the hearts of of people right now. Oh Jesus, we thank you. Thank you also that we could give our tithes, our grace gifts, and our offerings. Lord, use them for the glory of your holy name. Lord, make us your partners. And may we not be afraid of persecution. In Jesus' blessed name we pray. Amen and amen.